This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I'm going to speak to you tonight on retinal diseases and some of the most common conditions we see and treat as retinal specialists. And the topic tonight is hiding in plain sight because retinal conditions are those which uh, may not be readily apparent without a, a dilated eye exam, but certainly the eye can be very revealing about uh, a patient's general systemic health and can give us a lot of important information. So first we'll start with a basic definition and description, what is the retina? And the retina is sometimes described as the screen where images are made. Light will travel into the eye through the cornea and the lens, which focus the light and project an image onto the retina, which is a thin neurosensory tissue lining the posterior wall of the eye. And the retina must be thin and dry and flat in order to get a crisp image. Images focused on the retina are then converted to electrical impulses. The light is perceived by the photoreceptor cells, the deepest layer within the retina, and um, they tr then transmit a signal through the retina to the optic nerve. Here we also see the macula, which is an area within the retina that has the highest concentration of photoreceptors and the fovea within it. And those are the areas responsible for fine central vision. I also want to talk about the vitreous body because this is a part of the eye that is intimately involved with some of the conditions we're going to discuss. And the vitreous is a transparent, clear tissue um, that fills the posterior chamber of the eye behind the lens and in front of the retina. The vitreous serves as a scaffold and is important in fetal development of the eye, but it doesn't have a particular function in adulthood other than being a transparent medium through which light passes to the retina. It's composed of collagen fibers and hyaluronic acid, and with age, it loses some of its viscosity and mass, and some of those fibers can clump together, creating floaters. So how do we examine the retina? Um, we perform a dilated fundus exam, and this is recommended annually in adulthood and in certain circumstances at younger ages. And it allows us to examine structures in the posterior chamber of the eye. Here you can see with an undilated pupil, there's a small opening through which light enters. Uh, we can see some of the structures in the posterior chamber of the eye, but with a larger dilated pupil, we're able to get a better view. And so we pharmacologically dilate the pupil with drops. We're able to get a better view of the lens, which is shown here between the two yellow arrows. And as you learned last week, the lens is nice and clear in childhood. And as it eventually becomes a less clear, it becomes a cataract. We're able to visualize the vitreous body, which is shown here between the two yellow arrows, and you can see some wispy strands of the vitreous just behind the lens. We're able to examine the optic nerve, which is a pink disc, 
and the retinal vessels, both the arterioles and the venules shown as the lower arrows. The arterioles are finer caliber compared to the venules. And the macula, which as I said, is responsible for central vision, can be well visualized with the dilated fundoscopic exam. And it's shown here between the area between those arrows with the fovea at its center. And we can examine the peripheral retina, particularly looking for retinal tears and detachments, as I'll talk more about. With the dilated fundus exam, we can also identify incidental findings, something that we're not particularly looking for, maybe hiding in plain sight. One example is a choroidal nevus, which is analogous to a mole or a freckle on the skin, but is often asymptomatic and only identified by a dilated fundus exam and can be important to monitor because in certain rare cases, it can transform to melanoma or a tumor of the choroid, as is seen here. The dilated fundus exam allows us to identify retinal vascular conditions, such as shown here with retinal hemorrhages and cotton wool spots, dilated and tortuous retinal veins, which are found with venous congestion from a central retinal vein occlusion. And there are numerous other findings, such as uh, in this young girl who failed a vision screening at school and was found to have a tractional lesion over her optic nerve. So now that we know a little bit more what is the retina, it's this vascular thin neurosensory tissue lining the back wall of the eye, we can look at it in more detail and the various layers. Light comes through the vitreous and goes to the outer layers of the retina where the photoreceptors are, the cones and the rods. And the signal is then transmitted to the bipolar cells and then on to the ganglion cells whose nerve fiber layers pass and travel in the optic nerve to the brain as seen in this schematic diagram. This is another way of characterizing the layers of the retina, looking at a histologic section where you can see the photoreceptors, the bipolar cells in the outer nuclear layer, and the ganglion cells in the inner nuclear layer. And the nerve fiber layer is the most superficial shown here. We are fortunate to have wonderful tools in the office. Um, here you see an ultrasound image which is optical coherence tomography. And it allows us to visualize all the same layers of the retina. So we're gonna discuss some of the most common retinal conditions. Um, and we'll talk about posterior vitreous detachment, retinal tear and retinal detachment, macular pucker and hole, and finally age-related macular degeneration. And then we'll have the opportunity to learn from Dr. Duncan about diabetic retinopathy. So posterior vitreous detachment, also called PVD, is part of the normal aging process. And nearly everyone, if you live long enough, will develop a posterior vitreous detachment. It's not symptomatic in everybody. It occurs because over time, 
the vitreous loses some of its mass and peels away from the retina. So there'll be a separation between the vitreous shown here and the retina lining the posterior wall of the eye. During the process of separation, the patient may perceive flashes of light, which is the traction of the vitreous gel tugging on the retina as it peels away. The process also creates more floaters for most people. And in about 5% of the eyes, there can be a retinal tear, which we'll talk more about. So as we saw earlier, the vitreous can be examined at the slit lamp microscope, and it's just behind the lens, and we see these fibers of collagen between the two arrows. If there's a retinal tear, we can see pigment there. If there's inflammation in the eye, we can see white blood cells. This is another view of the vitreous, with, which we can uh, see with the indirect ophthalmoscope. And we see that the vitreous here has opacities and sheets that as they cast a shadow on the retina can be perceived as dark floaters. So a little bit more on the symptoms of flashes and floaters because these are commonly experienced by patients. And sometimes there can be concern, uh, is this from the retina? Is this a neurologic issue? Um, but there are some key characteristics of the symptoms of flashes and floaters as they relate to retinal condition. Here in the schematic, we see that the collapsing vitreous is tugging on the retina and the retina is tented up. And that traction is what is interpreted by the retina as light because it's neurosensory tissue. The floaters are floating around within the vitreous body. They're little clumps with and opacities within the vitreous gel. The floaters are often described as dark spots or lines. Some people will describe seeing a cobweb or some people even think they're seeing a fly and will swat at it thinking it's really something in the room. The floaters usually move in response to eye movement. They float within the gel and they are persistent on exam, but many patients through neuroadaptation will not be symptomatic after several months. So this is the dilated fundoscopic exam, which we perform with an indirect ophthalmoscope, um, which is a light, a light source, and then a lens, and a magnifying lens. And you can see that the examiner is examining a, through a dilated pupil. And we traditionally perform detailed color drawings to demonstrate the various features and pathology we see on exam. If a patient presents with flashes and floaters, we look closely for a retinal tear that may have been created as the vitreous gel separated from the retina. Some of the risk factors for developing a tear include family history, a history of lattice degeneration, trauma to the eye, high myopia or extreme nearsightedness, a history of uveitis or inflammation in the eye, and previous eye surgery, including cataract surgery. I mentioned lattice degeneration is a risk factor for a retinal tear. Lattice degeneration is when there are thin patches in the peripheral retina, and it's so named because there's a lattice-like white uh, lines over these patches, and there's also can be areas of 
hyperpigmentation within the lattice. Lattice is more commonly seen in patients with myopia and it predisposes to retinal tears and detachments. So when, if we do identify a retinal tear or a retinal break, we can perform prophylactic therapy to reduce the risk of retinal detachment. And we perform either a laser retinopexy or a cryopexy to create an adhesion between the neurosensory retina and the, the posterior wall of the eye. Um, here you can see laser spots in two rows around a retinal tear with some fluid associated with it. And the laser is concentrated light that creates thermal energy and it creates an adhesion there. It's, it acts like a spot weld. The adhesion begins at 24 hours after the treatment and it greatly reduces the risk of the tear uh, extending or the fluid propagating beyond the laser and leading to a broader retinal detachment. Cryopexy is another method of treating a retinal break. A probe is applied with compressed nitrous oxide gas and it creates an ice ball that then transmits through the wall of the eye to the retina and creates whitening there. Initially, there's actually decreased adhesion around the tear, but by two weeks, it creates this similar adhesion as laser. In cases where a retinal tear progresses to a regmatogenous retinal detachment, there is fluid that flows behind the retina. You can see here there's a retinal tear with a flap of retina that's opened up, creating a break and allowing fluid vitreous fluid to travel through the break behind the retina and detaching the retina from the back wall of the eye. Retinal detachments are usually symptomatic as a dark curtain or a shadow in the peripheral vision. Here you can see the optical coherence tomography, OCT image of the retinal detachment. And you can see that there is fluid that has accumulated under the retina and is approaching the central macula or the fovea here. Here you can see a view of a detached retina where superiorly the retina has taken on a white swollen appearance with corrugations within it and that signifies that the retina has detached away from the back wall of the eye and there's fluid separating it. This is another view of a retinal detachment in which you can see uh, in this image, the retina happens to look green. That's just an artifact of the camera, but you can see that the detached retina with fluid underneath it is bullishly detached um, in that area that appears green, whereas there's flat retina everywhere else where the retina it remains flat. And here's another form of retinal detachment with tractional component. You can see white fibrotic tissue on the surface of the retina that's pulling the retinal vessels out of configuration and detaching it from the posterior wall of the eye. And finally, here is a, a more advanced form of a regmatogenous retinal detachment, which has been complicated by proliferative vitreoretinopathy. This is the retinal break here. The edges have become rolled and 
proliferative tissue has passed onto the surface of the retina, creating stiff folds and thickening of the retina. This can happen with more chronic or recurrent retinal detachments. And here is an image of a serous retinal detachment in which there's no retinal tear, but an inflammatory condition has created accumulation of fluid under the retina and detached the retina focally here. This eye, the patient has a condition called VKH. You can also see the nerve looks especially red. So in, in order to repair a retinal detachment, we have uh, a series of surgical techniques, including scleral buckle, vitrectomy, pneumatic retinopexy, and laser barricade. The scleral buckle for retinal detachment repair involves the placement of an inert silicone band, which is wrapped around the outer circumference, the outer wall of the eye, in order to support the retinal break, the retinal tear shown here. So here you can see the retinal tear with the flap open and the silicone band is often placed immediately adjacent to that. And it relieves any traction on this flap so that the retina can, the tear can lay flat and supports those breaks. Simultaneously with the scleral buckle, cryopexy or cryotherapy will be applied to the breaks in order to create an adhesion around the retinal tears. Another method of repairing a retinal detachment is vitrectomy surgery. Vitrectomy is a general term for removal of the vitreous gel. And in this case, the vitreous is removed and vitreoretinal traction is relieved from the tears. The posterior chamber is maintained during the surgery with a constant infusion of a balanced salt solution. And at the end of the case, it's replaced with air and then an expansile gas, which remains in the eye and creates a tamponade of the retinal breaks until it's gradually reabsorbed by the, the eye. The retinal breaks in this case are also treated usually with laser, but sometimes with cryotherapy along with the vitrectomy surgery. Here you can see uh, the eye as it's undergoing vitrectomy surgery. This eye has already undergone cataract surgery, maybe at a previous date. So we see it has an artificial intraocular lens, an implant. There are two ports here that are, allow us to introduce instruments into the eye. One is usually a light pipe to improve visualization in the back of the eye. And one is the operating instrument, starting with the vitrector, which is which cuts and removes and suctions out the vitreous gel. Um, and then we can also introduce other instruments in the eye to peel membranes, to apply laser, uh, to apply diathermy. And then this third port, it, you can see the inf infusion is attached, which can inject balanced salt solution and later air into the eye. There are also in-office procedures, which are options for repair of certain retinal detachments. Um, in an eye in which the breaks are well visualized in the office and are accessible for therapy, we can inject a gas bubble into the eye in the office without removing the vitreous gel. And 
And this gas bubble will then expand and cover the break and allow us to apply laser retinopexy around the break, thus repairing the retinal detachment without proceeding to the operating room. And so for those patients who have particular reasons to avoid anesthesia or particular reasons to avoid um, going to the operating room um, or want to avoid some of the risks of vitrectomy, surgery, or scleral buckle, pneumatic retinopexy can be a good option for repair of retinal detachment. And then finally, laser barricade is uh, an option in patients who have a subclinical retinal detachment. Subclinical meaning asymptomatic. They don't notice that curtain or shade in their peripheral vision. And laser can be applied around the borders of the retinal detachment um, to barricade it. The retinal detachment remains, but since it's asymptomatic, it does not need to be flattened and repaired. So there are um, many factors when we choose our surgical approach for retinal detachment, including the size, number, and location of the breaks, the size and location of the detachment, the phacic status, meaning whether the patient has undergone cataract surgery or not, age, the patient's ability to position, because sometimes in order to place the gas bubble over the breaks, there are certain particular positioning requirements after the procedure, and their ability to tolerate anesthesia for surgery. So now we've discussed uh, posterior vitreous detachment, flashes and floaters. We've discussed retinal tear and retinal detachment. And now we're gonna shift gears and talk about macular conditions. Um, the macula, as we've said several times, is responsible for the central vision. It's the portion of the retina that has the most dense concentration of photoreceptors. And disorders of the macula can lead to something we call metamorphopsia, which is distortion or warping of the vision. Can also cause scotoma, dark spots, or loss of the central vision, general blurring of the vision. Here I have a cartoon made for me by one of my patients uh, who happens to be a cartoonist. And uh, he wanted to not just describe to me, but show to me uh, the difference in the vision between each eye. So on the left side, you see how a door appears to him out of the unaffected eye. And on the right eye, you see how a door appears to him out of the eye that's affected by a macular condition that's causing distortion or metamorphopsia. So you can see the, the normally straight edge of the door looks warped or bent to him. So there are various macular conditions that can create metamorphopsia, including macular hole, macular pucker, macular degeneration, and macular edema, including diabetic macular edema. So here I'm showing the macula again, this portion of the retina that we call the macula. This is a normal OCT, optical coherence tomography, looking at the cross section through the layers of the retina in the center where the fovea is. This depression is called the foveal depression. That's a normal finding at the thinnest area of the macula. And below that, we see this patient with an epiretinal membrane. He has an extra layer of tissue over the surface 
of the macula. The foveal depression is lost because the retina is being pulled up towards this fibrotic membrane. And intraretinal fluid is accumulating within the layers of the retina. Here you see these dark cystic-like spaces where the retina is thickened and swollen. And that is what creates what we see here, the metamorphopsia in the view. This shows um, an eye that's undergoing macular surgery. And this is a heads up display that the surgeon can see through the microscope. Here they see the macula, which has been stained green in order to better visualize the layers on the surface. And the epiretinal membrane. And then here you see the optical coherence tomography superimposed next to it um, and the epiretinal membrane here. Vitreomacular traction is uh, another condition similar to epiretinal membrane. It's on exam, it can be very subtle. The fovea just doesn't have quite as brisk of a light reflex. But you can see here, it occurs because the vitreous gel is starting to separate from the macula, but there's a strong adhesion here centrally at the fovea and the fovea is tented up and distorted. And surgery can be performed, vitrectomy surgery, to remove the vitreous gel and peel this traction off the macula and allow the macula to restore a more normal architecture. A macular hole is shown here where you can see at the fovea, there is a red hole. This is a full thickness defect in the neurosensory retina. And there's a little cuff of fluid, this little orange ring around it. Uh, and this can cause a loss of central vision in that eye. Here you see the macular hole, the eye with the macular hole, um, which will undergo repair. And you can see on the optical coherence tomography, the intraoperative view, that these edges of the hole are separated. And with time after the surgery and 90% of cases, these holes will close and these uh, edges will reoppose and vision will be restored. Here you see forceps that are introduced in the eye surgically, and you can see that the membrane has been stained a brilliant blue color, and the forceps are being used to lift that membrane off the surface of the macula and relieve the traction that it's causing. So next I'll move on to talking about age-related macular degeneration which is uh, one of the most common causes of vision loss in the United States um, and is uh, something that we are fortunate to have very good treatment for, particularly for wet macular degeneration. Macular degeneration is generally put into two buckets, dry macular degeneration and wet macular degeneration. Although as we improve our understanding of the underlying causes of this condition, there's some thought that many patients have overlapping forms or maybe it exists along a spectrum. Dry macular degeneration, as it's classically described, affects 80% of those patients with macular degeneration. The majority of patients with macular degeneration have the dry form. It's often asymptomatic, especially at the early stages. 
it progresses more slowly than wet macular degeneration, and patients may never develop visual symptoms, and they may never develop wet macular degeneration if they present with dry macular degeneration. There's currently no specific treatment available, although there are many ongoing clinical trials, some which have been quite promising, and there's uh, a lot of thought in the retinal community that there will be specific treatments for dry macular degeneration that are available um, within the next few years, hopefully. That's the optimistic perspective. Wet macular degeneration affects 20% of those patients with macular degeneration. It's often symptomatic at presentation and patients will experience metamorphopsia or distortion, or blurred vision, and sometimes they can have a scotoma, a dark spot in the vision. Without treatment, um, there, it, the natural history is that it will usually progress to loss of central vision, although peripheral vision is rarely effective. But there is good injection medication treatment with antivascular endothelial growth factor agents, and uh, we can in the majority of cases, we can arrest progression of vision loss, and in some cases, we can restore vision from presentation. So here you see eyes that are affected by macular degeneration, and the key feature of macular degeneration are drusen, which are these fine yellow-white deposits underneath the retina. The, the drusen are actually part of a normal aging process. So um, even eyes unaffected by macular degeneration will often have some degree of drusen that are age-related over time. But when they accumulate more in the macula, they're, when they're more densely populating the macula, or when they're larger, then we classify it as macular degeneration. Here you can see in the right eye, there's this greenish uh, membrane and elevation within the macula, and then you see the fine pinpoint drusen around it. So early detection of macular degeneration, just like um, many conditions, early detection is very helpful in order to um, help uh, implement treatment early. So that's part of why we recommend an annual dilated exam for all patients more frequent examinations for patients with early macular degeneration. And we can also perform optical coherence tomography and fundus autofluorescence as needed. And we can recommend home testing with an Amsler grid or the 4C home in order for patients to identify their symptoms earlier. Many patients will come in and say, you know, I notice that whereas this door used to look straight, it now looks bent. Or if I look at the blinds uh, next to my kitchen table, some of them look bent. And so that's how they know that there's been some progression of the macular degeneration. But home testing can be helpful. This is an Amsler grid, which we often give to patients to go home, and we instruct them to hold it about 14 inches from their eyes to wear whatever glasses or correction that they would normally wear for reading, and to test each eye separately, which is really instrumental, because otherwise one eye can compensate for the other, and patients won't notice distortion. When looking at the grid, the 
patient uh, focuses on the dot in the center and all the lines in the lid in the grid, both horizontal and vertical should be straight. And uh, we ask them to let us know if there's any distortion, any bends or waves or curves that they identify on the grid. And we do it in the office and also send patients home with the grid and ask them to test at home. This patient here is using a device called the 4C Home, which is similar to the Amsler grid in trying to detect a distortion or changes in the vision. But when there is something identified, uh, the physician, prescribing physician is contacted directly by the company and the patient can be asked to come to the office for an examination sooner to monitor for any changes in their macular condition. Macular degeneration is usually asymptomatic initially. And so patients will look at the Amsler grid and they will see the dot in the center. They will see all the lines, both horizontal and vertical looking straight and the boxes of the grid looking undistorted. With early symptoms, they might, may notice some distortion or warping of straight lines. They may also notice a decrease in the intensity or brightness of colors. And with more advanced symptoms of macular degeneration, patients may experience delayed dark adaptation. So when they step inside from a bright sunny day into a dimly lit room, they may find that it, they can't see anything. They can't make out anything in the room. And it takes them quite a long time before their eyes adapt and they're able to make out the structures in the room. Other symptoms of more advanced macular degeneration include a dark blurry area in the central center of the vision. And sometimes they'll experience a sudden loss of central vision. The risk factors for macular degeneration include age over 50 years, family history of macular degeneration, and ethnicity with macular degeneration being most common among Caucasians. There are also modifiable risk factors. So a diet high in saturated fat, such as meat, butter, and cheese can increase the risk of macular degeneration. Weight can be a factor. And certainly we know smoking because it exposes you to oxidative stress is associated with macular degeneration. And then also sunlight exposure. So it's never too early to wear hat and sunglasses and protect the eyes and retina from too much ultraviolet light. In terms of diet, we recommend a diet rich in green leafy vegetables, such as spinach, kale, and chard, colorful vegetables, such as bell peppers, and omega-3 fatty acids, such as found in fatty fish and salmon, flaxseed, walnuts, and also fortified foods. And most patients can identify some of these foods that they enjoy and that they can try and uh, introduce into their diet or increase in their diet. There are also vitamins uh, for the eyes. And um, one thing to highlight is these vitamins have been shown in clinical trials sponsored by the National Eye Institute to be helpful, but it was found to be helpful only for patients who do have intermediate dry macular degeneration to reduce the risk of progression to more advanced dry macular degeneration 
or wet macular degeneration. And so often patients will ask, should I take eye vitamins? And sometimes these are patients who don't have macular degeneration. Maybe there's a family history of macular degeneration, or maybe there's a, a concern about another condition, diabetic retinopathy. And um, you know what we do know about these vitamins is that they're helpful AREDS-2, which stands for Age-Related Eye Disease Study 2. It was the second um, in a series of large trials in which patients were given this particular formula of vitamin C, vitamin E, lutein, zeaxanthin, zinc, and copper. And uh, the patients who took these vitamins, it didn't reduce the risk of progression of cataract, but it did reduce the risk of progression of macular degeneration. And cataract was looked at as well. And here I list some of the more common brands that manufacture the AREDS-2 formula vitamins. So as I said before, unfortunately, we don't yet have a targeted treatment for dry macular degeneration. The etiology is not completely understood, although there's increased understanding in the role of the complement pathway of the immune system. And there are several promising therapeutic interventions in the pipeline. With wet macular degeneration, there is specific treatment, fortunately, it is not a cure and it does require ongoing therapy. So here you can see a patient who's developed wet macular degeneration with fluid within the macula and hemorrhage as well, bleeding within the macula. And uh, we can offer um, an intravitreal anti-VEGF injection, which can help create involution of the neovascular membrane that led to the bleeding and the fluid. Um, that this is considered a chronic condition, just like hypertension. And so the need for injections is ongoing. The injections are started at a monthly interval. Sometimes we're able to space them out less frequently over time. But at this point, the injection, the therapy is indefinite, ongoing. You can imagine this is a big treatment burden for our patients, both in the time of the patient, their family members who often accompany them to visits. There's a significant cost associated with the visits and with the medication. Um, and sometimes there are barriers to accessibility, particularly for patients who live in more rural areas and have to travel far for their visits. So there's a significant need for a longer lasting therapy. And there are uh, several promising candidates in the pipeline for that as well. Prior to the anti-VEGF injections, we would perform laser photocoagulation or PDT, photodynamic therapy, a type of cold laser. And while both of those treatments were effective in some cases, they were not nearly as safe in preserving the central vision. And so uh, anti-VEGF injections have really uh, revolutionized the care of macular degeneration, one of the great success stories of um, modern medicine. The anti-VEGF injections, um, anti-VEGF means anti-vascular endothelial growth factor. So they target and block a growth factor that circulates within the eye during macular degeneration. Uh, there are uh, three 
medications most frequently used. There's a fourth also, brolicizumab on the market, more recently introduced and less commonly used. Um, and um, these there, there are newer medications being developed that target other pathways with the goal of lasting longer in between injections. An intravitreal injection is performed in the office. Here you can see an, an eyelid speculum is placed in the eye, betadine antiseptic is applied to reduce the risk of infection, and uh, certainly anesthesia is used. So um, while nobody likes the idea of an injection in the eye, we actually are able to make it painless at the time of the injection, and patients may have some irritation or soreness for a day or two after the injection, um, but fortunately, we're able to keep them comfortable during the injection. And there are various approaches to the injection frequency. We know from randomized clinical trials that monthly injections um, have the best chance of preserving vision, but sometimes we'll treat patients as needed basis, or um, most commonly we'll do a treat and extend protocol in which we treat patients monthly for at least three injections until the macular degeneration is well controlled. And then at each subsequent visit, we'll extend the interval of visits by one or two weeks so that um, the patient is able to come in less frequently. I have mentioned that there are new pathways for macular degeneration and, and its treatment. You see here a device that can be implanted in the eye uh, about the size of a grain of rice. And this is a reservoir for anti-VEGF medication, ranibizumab. And this is currently in phase three clinical trials. We've enrolled patients here at UCSF. The idea being that with the reservoir of medication, patients can go uh, long periods of time, up to 18 months without needing that medication to be refilled. Eventually, um, we do refill the medication and replace it with more ranibizumab. I mentioned that there are uh, multiple medications in trial that target the complement pathway. There's also certain subretinal therapies that are being studied. Here is uh, external photos showing that port delivery system, which I showed previously, that's implanted in the eye. Here you can see that there's a membrane um, through which a refill can be performed. Uh, looking straight on, the port isn't visible, but it, um, the port is behind the lens here in the posterior chamber of the eye and can remain there. Here you can see um, the refill procedure being performed similar to an intravitreal injection with a uh, specialized refill needle that allows for simultaneous injection of fresh drug, fresh ranibizumab, as there is reflux of the old drug from the port coming back out into the needle. So there's a, a refill, a replacement of the medication. And this can be done in the office um, in as often as every six months, um, but 
often it may not be needed as frequently. And here you can see the surgeon being trained to do the refill procedure with um, virtual reality goggles and um, an artificial needle so that he can practice the angle of insertion of the refill needle. So the port delivery system is um, contains a customized formulation of ranibizumab, which is one of the anti-VEGF um, medications that's most frequently injected into the eye for macular degeneration. And uh, one of the theoretic advantages is that um, with the port delivery system, there's less fluctuation in the vitreous drug concentration. So you can hear, see, see here with the standard monthly treatment in the office with an intravitreal injection, there are peaks and troughs in the concentration of ranibizumab within the eye. Whereas with the port delivery system, which is refilled every six months or less frequently, there's constant diffusion from the refill from the, the port into the vitreous, and it allows a more slow decline in the concentration of the ranibizumab. And this can theoretically reduce fluctuations in the amount of fluid um, in the retina and improve control of the macular degeneration. So finally, I just wanted to highlight a couple of resources um, that I often share with my patients um, because there's so much information online when we want to educate ourselves about our health and our eyes. And so I recommend going to the American Academy of Ophthalmology website. There's a specific information at the iSmart website. Um, aao.org iHealth with uh, information about the topics we covered already tonight and many others. And also the American Society of Retina Specialists has uh, fact sheets for patients that cover various retinal diseases and conditions with, with reliable factual information so that we can learn more. That's all that I have for this evening. Thank you for your attention. And uh, we look forward to hearing from Dr. Duncan. So that was just a lovely, amazing, wonderful, very comprehensive talk and introduced a lot of the concepts that I would like, uh, I'm going to touch on, but I'm going to focus my talk today on diabetic retinopathy. Um, and diabetic retinopathy is important because it is the leading cause of blindness among young patients in the United States, people of working age adults. Um, it affects about 40% of patients with diabetes over the age of 40, which represents between four and 6 million people in the United States. And it can cause about, in about 8% of the time, it can cause severe vision threatening complications, which is about a million people to a million and a half people. So it's a very important public health condition or cause of vision loss um, in the population. So diabetic retinopathy can happen no matter whether you have type 1 diabetes or type 2 diabetes. If you are diagnosed with diabetes before you are 30 years of age and you are treated with insulin, you are likely to have some evidence of diabetic retinopathy about 90% of the time if you've had diabetes and been on insulin between 10 and 15 years. Most people will have some retinopathy by that time. And fully one-fourth of those people will have new blood vessels growing on the retina that can threaten their vision. If you develop diabetes after the age of 30 instead, 
only about 30% will have uh, retinopathy, but it will be present at the time the diabetes is diagnosed. So they can have diabetes for a relatively long period of time before they find out they have diabetes. So it's very important for people who are diagnosed with diabetes after the age of 30 to see a doctor right away when they get that diagnosis, because they might already have diabetic retinopathy. 15 years after that diagnosis, about half of the patients with uh, adult onset forms of diabetes have retinopathy if they're not treated with insulin. And if they are requiring insulin, it's about 80% of people who will have diabetic retinopathy. We have two forms of diabetic retinopathy, two classes, which differ mostly in the degree of severity. There's the non-proliferative kind, which we call NPDR. And there's the proliferative kind, which we call PDR for proliferative diabetic retinopathy. And the way they're different is the non-proliferative kind has changes in the retinal blood vessel that are confined to the retina. They are limited to the surface of the retina. Once the diabetic retinopathy becomes more severe, the changes in the retinal blood vessels extend beyond the surface of the retina and into the eye cavity itself, the vitreous cavity. And that is associated with new blood vessels and has a greater chance of severe vision loss. But both kinds of diabetic retinopathy can cause central vision loss due to swelling, which we call macular edema. So more about each of these now. So the less severe kind is non-proliferative diabetic retinopathy. And what what we see when we tell someone that they have this condition is little changes in the blood vessels when we look at the eyes. So first things we'll see are little red dots, which are often either little outpouchings of the capillaries, which we call microaneurysms, or little hemorrhages, dot and blood hemorrhages, or these little outpouchings can leak fluid. And sometimes that can cause swelling or macular edema, or it can cause exudates. And those are just lipid fatty deposits that are left behind as the underlying retinal pigment epithelial cells try to suck up the fluid. As the disease gets more severe, sometimes the little capillaries that bring oxygen to the retina disappear. And we call that capillary non-perfusion. That can also cause vision loss. And finally, sometimes people will develop scar tissue on the surface of the retina called an epiretinal membrane which uh, Dr. Newell mentioned earlier in her talk. This is a picture of a normal retina. And I will use a laser pointer here to show you. This is the optic nerve. And these are the retinal arteries, which are kind of orange and skinny, and veins, which are a little darker red and a little thicker. Um, And right in the center is the macula, which is where macular edema can happen. That's where the very best vision is. Patients with diabetes don't look quite like this. Uh, If you have diabetic retinopathy, your retina might look different and and look more like this, where again, I mentioned we have little red dots. These can either be microaneurysms or hemorrhages. And these yellow blobs are exudates. So that's fat in the serum or the plasma of the blood that leaks out of these capillaries and cannot readily be absorbed by the underlying cells, the RPE cells. So you leave behind these circles of lipid or fat that show you where the leaking fluid is coming from. And it's coming from these little microaneurysms, which I call the circinate heart exudate, and it helps us know where the leakage is originating. And what can really damage the vision is when the swelling involves the fovea, the center of the retina. You can see all this fatty stuff collecting right in the center where best, best vision originates. So if you have fatty deposits in your central retina, it's going to knock the vision down. 
how do we diagnose diabetic retinopathy? Well, sometimes we use a thing called fluorescein angiography, where we inject a yellow dye into an arm vein, and we take pictures of the eye with a special camera. And this allows us to look at the blood vessels uh, using the dye, which fills up the blood vessels first in the arteries, then in the capillaries, and then finally drains through the veins. So here's a picture of an angiogram from a patient with non-proliferative diabetic retinopathy. And in addition to the beautiful capillaries that you can see, you see these little white dots. They almost look like little ornaments or lights on a Christmas tree, little light bulbs. Each of those is a microaneurysm that is filling up with fluorescein dye. And we're able to visualize it with that special camera. If we look a little later, if we wait a little longer after the dye has been injected in the arms, we see the little dots become kind of brighter and bigger and more blurry. And that's because the dye is diffusing or leaking out of those microaneurysms, causing swelling in the center of the retina, which is knocking down the vision. So this is a very helpful test because it allows us to know where the leaky fluid is coming from. And we can sometimes direct our treatments exactly at the culprits um, using this technique. More commonly, we use a technique that Dr. Newell described a few minutes ago called optical coherence tomography. This shows us the retinal structures inside view. And the nice thing about this is it doesn't require any dye injection. We can get these pictures in the clinic without even touching the eye. Patients like it a lot. You can follow them over time. And this is a picture of the eye. And this line shows you where this particular scan came from, showing a nice healthy looking fovea with a little dip in the center where, and showing a little mat, higher magnification here, little dip in the center where the best vision is mediated. These are the cells responsible for your best central vision. Well, in patients with diabetes, the OCT looks different. Here with diabetes, we can see that that fovea is no longer nice and compact with a little dip. Instead, it's swollen. You can see dark circles, which are fluid in cysts, little cystic spaces. And this is definitely likely to cause vision loss by interfering with the normal foveal structure. How do we treat diabetic macular edema? Well, there's a couple different ways. The most important way is to control the sugar as well as blood pressure. So the most important treatment really relies on the patient in conjunction with their primary care physician or diabetes specialist. Ophthalmologists have an important role in making sure that the diabetes doesn't cause vision-threatening complications. But the most important thing is to treat the disease by controlling the glucose and blood pressure. When we see swelling, sometimes we'll use a very concentrated beam of light, which looks a little like my laser pointer here, uh, to deliver directly to those microaneurysms that are responsible for the leakage, lighting up on the fluorescein and causing leakage in the late frames. More recently, people have used the same antivascular endothelial growth factor treatments that Dr. Newalt introduced in her talk. Uh, in 2012, a treatment called ranibizumab was approved by the FDA for the use of treatment or for the treatment of patients with diabetic retinopathy. Earlier, it was treat, approved for treatment of patients with macular degeneration, but later found to be very effective in treating people with diabetic macular edema. Later, a new medic, another medication that acts in similar ways two years later was approved. It's called a flibercept. Both of them work by blocking this protein called vascular endothelial growth factor that causes the blood vessels to become leaky. Sometimes we use steroids for very severe swelling 
But the problem with steroids is that they sometimes cause cataract for people who have not had their cataracts removed, and in about a third of people can cause glaucoma. So more often than not, we'll use an antivascular endothelial growth factor injection instead. And finally, if the scar tissue and the swelling is severe enough, we'll sometimes resort to surgery and remove that scar tissue. And I'll talk about each of these. So this is a picture of a patient with macular edema surrounding little microaneurysms, and these are the hard exudates representing the extent of the swelling. And if we did a micro, uh, fluorescein angiogram on this patient, again, we see these little microaneurysms, which are leaking in the late frames. See the fluid seeping out of them evidenced by this dye. Well, we can use this fluorescein to guide our treatment. We can deliver little spots of light to each of the microaneurysms and cause the retina to swell a little. You can see little white swelling, white edema in the retina surrounding each of the microaneurysms where the laser was delivered. And that can cause the swelling to get better. But if we're likely to use an injection instead, the two earliest ones that were developed were uh, ranibizumab and bevacizumab. And they are antibody fragments that block this protein, vascular endothelial growth factor. They have to be injected into the eye every month, similar to the treatments that Dr. Newell described. Here's a picture of someone getting their injection. But because they are so effective and they help the vision improve so much, patients are very eager most of the time to come in and have these treatments on a monthly basis. And importantly, in diabetes, most of the time people don't have to have a treatment every single month. In the first year of treatment, patients needed to be treated almost every month, between eight and nine times a year. But by the second year, they only needed two or three. By the third year, they needed one or two treatments a year. After four years, they just needed one treatment a year and none by the fifth year. So over time, the diet, with diabetic control, the number of injections decreases. This sometimes is used off-label when people develop new blood vessels in their eye. Um, and this relative of ranibizumab, bevacizumab, is not FDA approved, but is commonly used and found, has been found in randomized clinical trials to be very effective. So what happens when the diabetes is not controlled and the sugars are high and the diabetic retinopathy gets worse? Well, here's what we start to see on exam. And I'll show you some examples of each of these. First, people develop more severe hemorrhages, not just those little dots I showed you before, but more diffuse hemorrhages throughout the retina. We start to see changes in the veins. They become kind of bloated and blobby like sausage links. We call that venous beating. And eventually we start seeing the, the development of little blood vessels growing on the surface of the retina. When they're still confined to the retinal surface, we call them intraretinal microvascular abnormalities or IRMA for short. Eventually, the capillaries become more and more severely damaged, and as they become damaged, they close, which causes more lack of oxygen delivery to the retina or ischemia, which then causes more vascular endothelial growth factor to be released and causes new blood vessels to grow on the surface of the retina. It becomes something of a vicious cycle. So here's an example of the high-risk features that I was mentioning a minute ago that show that diabetic retinopathy is going from non-proliferative to proliferative. Here you can begin to see these bulges in the veins that we call venous beating, indicating that there's areas of non-perfusion. There's areas of capillary loss all in through here. We see much more extensive bleeding and hemorrhages, and we start to see these little lacy structures that are flat 
which represent intraretinal microvascular abnormalities. And here's an an, my, a fluorescein angiogram of that same eye. And what you can, what this demonstrates is again, this vein is quite dilated and bulgy, but see there's big areas where there are really no capillaries at all. And this profound capillary closure is setting the patient up for more and more vascular endothelial growth factor. You see it as well up here. And eventually you start to see new blood vessels growing on the surface of the retina, which represents proliferative diabetic retinopathy. And the diabetic retinopathy has now entered a more severe stage. Uh, and as we go into that area of proliferative diabetic retinopathy, that is what happens when we see new blood vessels growing either on the optic nerve, on the disc, or other, where, other places in the retina. This can cause vision loss, either because the new blood vessels can bleed or the new blood vessels can contract and pull up on the retina to cause a retinal detachment, or they can grow in the front of the eye and cause very severe glaucoma. And I'll show you examples of each of these in the next slides. Here is an example of a patient who has neovascularization elsewhere or new blood vessels growing on the surface of the retina. See these loopy, ropey vessels that are not normal. These are areas that are grown from, have grown from normal capillaries in areas of profound non-perfusion. Here we see no capillaries at all. And at the very margin there, we see these abnormal blood vessels growing. And eventually, sometimes they grow off the surface of the retina into the vitreous cavity. And you can tell that it's in the vitreous because this part of the picture is in a different plane of focus than the underlying retina. So you know this is sticking up. And then you know it's new blood vessels growing on the surface of the retina. So here is what, why that happens. This is a cartoon that shows the vitreous jelly, which is stuck down to the scar tissue on or the new blood vessels on the surface of the retina. And if you can imagine, this jelly is now kind of pulling on the new blood vessels. And if it's pulling on new abnormal blood vessels, what's going to happen? They're going to bleed. And if they bleed, you can see the blood fills up the vitreous jelly. And this is what it looks like when we examine the eye. You can imagine that the person's vision is very severely reduced at this point. You, I can't really see in and the patient can't really see out. So how do we examine the retina when this happens? Well, we use a technique called ultrasound. And this is the same approach that we use for patients, for women who are pregnant with babies. Um, we can look through their abdominal wall to see the babies with ultrasound. So this is very similar. If we can't see through the eye, we use the same kind of ultrasound or sound waves to look through that blood and determine whether the underlying retina is still intact and attached. And if we see, this is an example of a patient with vitreous hemorrhage where the retina is attached, their eyeball is just filled with blood, but the retina is stuck down the way it should be. Here, on the other hand, is an example where we're seeing traction pulling up on the retina right here uh, where the backside of the vitreous is connected to the retina and pulling up on it. You can see from this arrow causing a little area of retinal detachment that might need to be treated with surgery. And here's how we fix that. This is the kind of a cartoon showing the kind of surgery that Dr. Newell was describing before. First, the patient develops bleeding vitreous hemorrhage. We go in with like a special kind of chopstick that goes and has a cutting edge on the end of it. And it goes chop, 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 removes all the blood and vitreous as well. And afterward, the eye looks very clear and the patient can see much better. The other thing we often do is laser. We put laser all around the edges, not in the macula, but everywhere that is releasing the, anti, the vascular endothelial 
growth factor to try and calm, calm those new blood vessels down and cause them to scar. And this is showing some scarring down blood vessels after laser. So how do we treat di proliferative diabetic retinopathy? There's two ways. First, we have to decrease the new blood vessels that are growing. And first thing, again, most important, I cannot emphasize this strongly enough, is to control the sugars in the blood. So really good control of the glucose is critical. Um, second, we need to laser, we often use a laser to reduce the risk of severe vision loss by 96%. And then finally, we can use these anti-VEGF antibodies that Dr. Newell was describing. When there's traction on the retina, we have to do surgery, as I showed you before. So here again is a patient who has had some laser to try and calm down some of those abnormal blood vessels. We can use um, antibodies, which uh, Dr. Newell described, in, uh, injected into the eye, have been shown to be as effective as just laser. They're no worse than starting with laser. So they cause... Uh, they cause a very sensitive regression of the new blood vessels in response to these therapies, responding as early as one day after the treatment. And they are associated with less loss of peripheral vision, less loss of visual acuity, and less swelling with lower risk of surgery than um, doing the laser first. So people have used antivascular endothelial growth factor antibodies um, to treat diabetic retinopathy as a first line. That's the main way we're treating it now. And this is an example of these new blood vessels shrinking down and becoming fibrotic. When do we have to resort to surgery? Well, if we aren't able to see the retina in the presence of prolonged vitreous hemorrhage, sometimes we'll resort to surgery, especially if there's traction causing vision loss or retinal detachment threatening the macula. Sometimes we'll do surgery to peel a scar tissue off the surface of the retina or an epiretinal membrane. And sometimes if people don't respond, even despite laser and antibody treatments, we have to go in and do more extensive laser with surgery. Here is an example of a patient with proliferative diabetic retinopathy and lots and lots of scar tissue. You can't even find the optic nerve in this patient's eye. Here's the macula and it's all being pulled on by the scar tissue. And you look inside view and you can see that there's traction pulling up on the retina. So surgery requires removal of the vitreous jelly and cutting and removing the scar tissue that's pulling on the retina and causing vision loss. And afterwards, you find the optic nerve again. You can see the blood vessels are much more healthy uh, and the phobia has returned to a much more normal contour and the vision is better. So when do patients need to be seen if they have diabetes? When to go see the eye doctor? Well, we recommend that people with diabetes should see an ophthalmologist or an optometrist every year. There's been development of telehealth, which has expanded our ability to, to take care of patients and deliver annual eye examinations, no matter where patients live. So digital cameras with central reading centers have enabled us to deliver exams to patients, at, even in remote locations. Um, and it has helped expand access in the United Kingdom, which uh, has led to the point that diabetic retinopathy is no longer the leading cause of vision loss in adults aged 25 to 64 years, which is what I started my talk with. So it's actually changed the uh, future of uh, vision loss for patients of working age in the UK because they have greater access to eye exams. And uh, in the Indian Health Service, patients with diabetes had increased rates of eye exams from 50% to 75%, which led to a much greater rate, rates of being treated. So here's when you should be seen. If you have type 1 diabetes, 
you don't need to be seen right when you find out you have diabetes. You can wait for five years because most of the time people with type one diabetes don't have diabetes for very long before they find out they have diabetes, not long enough to cause the kind of problems that cause vision loss. So if you have type one diabetes, we recommend annual exams of your eyes beginning five years after diagnosis. But if you have type two diabetes, you might've had diabetes for a long time before you even knew you had it. So we recommend an eye exam at the time you find out you have diabetes and every year. If there's swelling present, we recommend seeing people every one to three months, especially if they are requiring regular injections. If they begin to show signs of worsening risk of proliferative diabetic retinopathy, even without any swelling, we need to see them at least twice a year and sometimes every quarter, every two or three months. And importantly, if someone is thinking about becoming pregnant and they know they're diabetic, we recommend having an eye exam even before you become pregnant if possible. So we can understand how severe or if there is any retinopathy um, before you become pregnant because pregnancy causes diabetic retinopathy to get much worse. So depending on how, what is what is visible at the time the patient becomes pregnant, we, that will determine how frequently the patients need to be seen during their pregnancy. So take home message first, diabetic retinopathy is a preventable cause of vision loss. Good blood sugar control, keeping the hemoglobin A1C level less than or equal to seven has been shown to reduce the risk of progression and vision loss. Swelling or macular edema is the leading cause of vision loss, whether you have type one diabetes or type two diabetes. We can treat it effectively with injections into the eye of anti-VEGF antibodies every month initially, and then less frequently as time goes on. And people with diabetes need to have dilated eye examinations at least once a year beginning five years after they find out they have type one diabetes. And as soon as they learn they have type two diabetes, but the bottom line is please control glucose, blood pressure, and lipids. And I think the resources that Dr. Newell shared with you are equally good for diabetic retinopathy. In addition, there's a diabetic retinopathy clinical research network that did a lot of the research I discussed today. And that's the end of my talk. So I'm happy to answer questions. All right. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Duncan and Dr. Newalt. That was awesome. Um, I can help kind of go through the questions. I There's a few that are already on here. Um, and if anybody has any more, just feel free to put them in the Q&A. Uh, I'm going to try to group these, but there are a couple of questions on retinal tears and detachments. So uh, first is, could you explain why high myopia creates a greater risk uh, for a, a retinal tear detachment, even if the patient always uses corrective lenses? Um, and then after that, there's a question on, you know, with these procedures, are the patients unconscious and how long do the procedures last to fix them? So we can kind of answer both of those at once. Okay, great questions. I can uh, answer that because um, it came from the first part of the talk. Um, so. Uh, when someone is myopic or nearsighted, they have a longer eyeball. It's physically longer. Um, and they're also more likely to have lattice degeneration or other conditions with thinning of the eye. And when the eyeball is longer, the retina may be thinner. It may be more physically more stretched out. Um, and so those are things that predispose you to get a retinal tear when the vitreous gel separates from the retina. Wearing corrective lenses helps to focus the light onto the retina, um, but really it's the, the configuration of the retina and the eye that predisposes you to a retinal tear detachment. 
And then, you know, we talked about some of the various procedures that we do for retinal tear and detachment. With the prophylactic therapy for retinal tear, we can almost always do that in the office with local anesthesia, either topical drops or um, local injections of anesthesia to keep the eye comfortable. And uh, we can do laser and cryotherapy in the office. With uh, pneumatic retinopexy, also we can do that in the office. Um, and there's often positioning requirements afterwards. So we'll see patients frequently as often as every day at first. Um, and then with the surgical repair of retinal detachment, that's done in the operating room, usually with conscious sedation. So the patient is awake, but sedated and relaxed. Uh, with scleral buckle, sometimes it'll be under general anesthesia. Um, and then, Jackie, this kind of goes along with that um, uh, exam examination schedule that you put up, but if you are pre-diabetic, is there the same level of risk for getting AMD and then do you also recommend annual eye exams for pre-diabetes? Yeah, that's an excellent question. I don't know of a relationship between pre-diabetes and macular degeneration, except that there are some sort of tenuous relationships between um, hypertension and obesity and the kinds of things that may put you at risk for AMD and diabetes separately. Um, but I think independently, uh, if you don't have a family history of macular degeneration or smoking or any of the other things that Dr. Newalt was saying, as well as being pre-diabetic, I don't know that being pre-diabetic in and of itself puts you at risk uh, of of macular degeneration. Um, I think for people who are pre-diabetic, I think it's still a good idea to be seen once a year. Um, I think the American Academy of Ophthalmology recommends that most people over the age of 50 should be seen once a year, if I'm not mistaken. So um, whether you're pre-diabetic, whether you have a family history of macular degeneration, um, whether you're very nearsighted, I think it's probably good medicine for everybody to probably have an eye exam once a year. Um, and then there was a couple of questions on macular pucker. So just kind of, uh, could you explain a little bit more about macular pucker? And then regarding the surgery, how successful is it at restoring retinal architecture um, and visual acuity? Great. Yeah, good question. So macular pucker um, is somewhat synonymous with epiretinal membrane. Sometimes I use those two terms interchangeably. Epiretinal membrane on the surface of the macula is called macular pucker. And sometimes it's also called cellophane maculopathy because when we examine the eye, it looks like a sheen on the surface of the macula. It's this very thin, transparent tissue in some cases. Other times it can be more white and fibrotic. And uh, the macular pucker distorts the retinal architecture. It's an extra layer of tissue that can cause wrinkling in the macula or folding of the macula or traction where the macula is actually pulled out of configuration. Sometimes we can monitor if the patient is relatively asymptomatic, if there isn't fluid accumulating in the macula, but when it becomes more symptomatic or severe, we offer surgical repair for macular pucker. That's really the primary treatment for macular pucker if we do intervene. And that's with vitrectomy surgery. And, um, you know, with the surgery is highly successful at removing the, the pucker. There's some chance of recurrence, but that's um, unlikely and usually down the line. Um, the visual recovery is a little bit slower than for some eye surgeries we perform. So patients who have had 
cataract surgery, I always point out that it's not going to be like cataract surgery, where in the first few days, they get most of the visual benefit. Because even once the pucker is removed, the macula retains that distorted architecture. And then gradually over the first month to three months, the retina can flatten out. So I use the analogy that it's like, if you have a fist grabbing some bed sheets and wrinkling them, even once the fist is released, the bed sheets are still going to be folded and then the gradually they'll smooth out. Uh, so the visual recovery can take up to three months or even six months or longer to get that full benefit. Um, we have certain indications preoperatively based on the optical coherence tomography of how much visual recovery a patient will get, but we can't always predict it. And there are certain cases where we get a good anatomic result where we take an OCT of the macula after surgery and anatomically it looks quite normal, but the patient might still experience some degree of distortion. Um, but for most patients, there's visual benefit and the distortion improves. And um, either of you can answer this one. How do you do injections into the eye? <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Duncan? <laughs> oh, sure. Yeah, it, there's a little space Behind the clear part where your cornea is called the cornea, where you can see the color of your eye, the iris, and the center, the black part is the pupil, and then the there, the eye turns white. So just a little ways into the white part, there's a nice safe spot called the pars plana, which is in front of where the retina is, but behind where the iris is. There's a little spot that is pretty safe where we measure very precisely. And we, as Dr. Newalt said, we anesthetize the eye. And, you know, it's not, it, you know, most people would rather like go to the beach than have this treatment, but it's not bad. Actually, people don't, are very frightened the first time they have it. And then afterwards, because it ruled, these treatments are so effective at helping them see better, they almost ne never miss a follow-up appointment. They come in and they say, guess what? It's time for me to have a treatment because they know that the medicine's wearing off and they really have benefited from it. All right. And there's just a couple more. We have a few more minutes. Um, when there is a macular off detachment, how fast do you need to perform surgery? Yeah, good question. Um, so uh, the, when the macula is involved in detachment, that means that the... Um, Horses already out of the barn in a sense. So the area that's responsible for central vision is already affected by the, the retinal detachment. And so we don't want to allow the retina to remain detached long-term. And we refer back to a trial that looked at patients who had surgery within seven days of the macula detaching, and they had the same visual outcome as patients who were repaired immediately. And so because of that, um, we usually try and uh, repair the, the retina within the first week. When the macula is still attached, there's more urgency to the surgical repair because our goal is to intervene before the macula becomes involved, be before the macula detaches as well. Great. And there was a question on a different condition called idiopathic macular telangiectasias. Um, and then uh, the participants just wondering, you know, they've been told that there's no current treatments, but they're wondering if there's any new recent information about future treatments. I'm happy to talk about that if, if you want me to. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, so macular telangiectasia type two, uh, a whole lot has been learned about that disease in the last 10 years um, due to a group called the, Macula, the Lowy Macular Research Foundation. 
Um, they have uh, learned that it is probably a, initially it was thought to be a vascular disease. It's probably not. It's probably a neurodegenerative condition. Um, and it is likely to be associated with abnormalities of the way your body metabolizes serine, actually. So um, there are certain very rare forms of macular telangiectasia, which are associated with peripheral neuropathy that are associated with serine, um, very abnormal serine levels. And most people don't have that severe extent, but they think that serine metabolism also plays a role um, in MACTEL. A lot of times people with MACTEL have prediabetes or developed diabetes. Um, it is true that there's not yet a treatment, but there is a phase three clinical trial that is well underway and likely to wrap up in the next several months, looking at a growth factor. Given that I just said it's a neurodegenerative condition, there is a growth factor called ciliary neurotrophic factor that is slowly being released into the eye by a special implant, a little bit like the port that Dr. Newell was describing, only a little bit different. Um, and they're looking to see whether it's going to help keep the vision, uh, preserve the vision as long as possible. So stay tuned. I think there will be um, results from that treatment or that treatment trial coming out in the next year. Are there non-surgical, non-medical, or natural treatments uh, for wet macular degeneration? I can start with that. And, and Dr. Duncan, you might have more to add. Um, I think that um, we do know that macular degeneration is related to um, our systemic health and our environmental exposures. And so, you know, um, as I talked about, I think reducing oxidative stress on the body is helpful. Um, I think avoiding ultraviolet light is helpful. Um, and also, <laughs> you know, I think exercise is in a form, it could be considered sort of a natural treatment. And I do think that cardiovascular exercise is probably helpful in reducing progression of macular degeneration and prevention towards macular degeneration. Um, I think that in the case of wet macular degeneration, I don't know if there's anything quite as effective as the anti-VEGF medications that we give. We know that they're um, undoubtedly very helpful. Um, but I think that also uh, there are certain aspects of lifestyle that can be helpful. I don't know if you have any other thoughts. Jack. Don't smoke. Do not smoke. Do not be around anyone that smokes. Don't smoke. That's the most important thing to be sure to do if you have macular degeneration. People also think dark green leafy vegetables may play an important role. Great. Um, and then we'll do one last question. Um, when high myopia causes a retinal detachment and macular hole in one eye, what is a chance that it can develop in the other eye? Mm. Yeah, it's, it's a good question. And I think that often um, high myopia can be asymmetric. And so um, I think there's a high likelihood of the other eye be, being affected by some aspects of myopia or macular degeneration. Um, we know that idiopathic macular hole is bilateral about 20% of the time. Um, and um, I think that, you know, uh, if I were talking, counseling a patient who had this occur in one eye, I would say, you know, it's important that we monitor the health of the other eye, but I wouldn't be specifically concerned about the same thing happening to the other eye. I don't know, Jackie, if you have any, any other thoughts on that. Yeah, um, it's true that like, uh, in general, if somebody's one eye has something, oftentimes the other eye gets it too. <laughs> That's just kind of a rule of thumb. Uh, so it's worth once you know, um, you have something in one eye, it's worth monitoring your vision closely such that if it develops in the other eye, it can be uh, diagnosed and treated as quickly as possible. Great.
Well, that is all that was in the Q&A. Um, thank you. Well, first, thank you, Dr. Duncan and Dr. Newell. That was really informative and I'm sure everyone really enjoyed it. Um, and thank you everyone for participating and we hope that you will join us next week for the next talk. <laughs> You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.